Crumb. Speak up, dude. Are you ready in Kentucky? I am. I'm ready. Welcome back, everybody, to the Chromecast. We are the jewel of the podcast world. I'm one of your hosts, Jonathan. I'm another one of your hosts, Josh. And I am the third, Luke. And tonight we are proud to be talking to you about a Robert E. Howard story, The Blood of the Gods, another El Borak story, such as our season has gone. But before we get into some of that content, of course, we're going to be very silly and introduce you to many things about ourselves first. The theme was powerful tonight. Yeah, it is. Oh, it's always powerful. It stirs the blood. It wakes the echoes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I felt it down, down, down deep. <laughs> down in, in the, the, the cockles of my heart. Down in your plums. The bits of your soul. <laughs> down in my plums. <laughs> <laughs> I felt I felt a antediluvian stirring in my soul. Yeah. So did I. <laughs> <laughs> We're weird. Yeah. Well. What else is new? They know us by now. They know. They, they know, know what by to expect. Now. Yeah. Because it's season eight, episode seven. That's right. Man. And we're discussing a Robert E. Howard joint tonight, right, John? That is correct. The Blood of the Gods, which is about going shopping for some ruby earrings. And getting really, really hot and really, really dried out in the process. Yeah. It's all about the need to moisturize. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You got to keep yeah. your eyes out for that oasis. Hey, speaking of imbibing liquids... What are you drinking there in Kentucky? You gotta stay quenched, dude. We got a. Uh, we just we're we're finishing off a, uh, a a bottle of my my home concocted uh, lemon thyme and mint mead that I that I that I cooked up and bottled like back in August. So uh, it's been it's been sitting in the bottle for a good half a year or longer, and I think it did it well. It aged really well. No. No, we, we can both still see. Uh, yeah. It was a. Uh, it, do you pronounce the word? Because I've only seen it written. Is it methaglin? It was a methaglin. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's how I say it. Okay. Uh, but yeah, when I first like did the the secondary racking and like popped in the the herbs, man, the uh, the mint was like overpowering. I kind of screwed up and I left uh, left the the brew or the juice on the the mint and the the time for about a week and I should have only done about three or four days. And so it was like super powerful. But now a good half year in the in the bottle. <laughs> it's aged out a little bit and it's pretty good. It's so. mellow. And and surprisingly, I think to both of us, there was a, a nice pop when you removed that cork. Yeah. And it was uh slightly effervescent. It had some carbonation, which is surprising because the specific gravity was like under one when I bottled it, at least in terms of my calculation. So there wasn't a whole lot of sugar that was in it. And it's kind of funny because it tastes a little bit sweet right now, even. So I guess that's just a testament to how the, the honey comes out a little bit. So those complex sugars, I guess. It's good stuff. So that's what we're 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 finishing off, but uh <laughs> My good friend Josh, he brought some some brews to share too. We started on a high note with delicious home brewed 
spicy mead. And now we have for the third week in a row hams. Um, this is $4 for a six pack of tall boys at Kroger, the bacon of beer. <laughs> it's a pork soda. Um, and yet again, it is, uh, born in the land of sky blue waters. Here, here. So we got, <laughs> we got that. And if we, if we need it, if we get a little bit rowdy and I don't think we will, we're going to keep it in check, but what? We, got, we got some OGD 114 if we want to dip into it. Oh my God. <laughs> my, oh, my granddad. <laughs> <laughs> OMG. <laughs> <laughs> You should mix the hams and the OGD together and make like an old ham dad. Oh, <laughs> old dude, ham. look at you. You just came up with something. The college kids are going to be all over that. That's true. Yes, the numerous college kids Have you tried listen to the Chromecast. Dude, I was listening to this podcast and they had the greatest idea for a cocktail. <laughs> it's the old ham dad. The, col- the college kids, I don't think they drink either hams or old granddad. They drink purple drink. They drink, I mean, they'll drink like the PBR or the, the Bud Lights or whatever, but... I don't think hams is is highly sought after college brews. Well, the natty bush, yeah. Because at least here you can't get the hams in anything but the big six packs. That's true. Like it's not the the mass volume like party beer. Yeah, it's just like the cheap like snaga six pack beer per volume. Yeah, per unit volume. It's it's maybe not your most economical choice if you want to yeah. get schmangled like an undergraduate would. Yeah, and the college <laughs> the college college whiskey is certainly not. What was your college beer? Mine was uh, absolutely high life, or like that was my my low hanging fruit. We also drank a bunch of uh, like old Milwaukee's best. Like we would buy the thirty packs of that for like nice. for like the the funnels in the bathtub. Like we would go in like in our dorm room, we had like a uh, a funnel, and so we had a funnel uh, that uh, we would we would funnel beers in the shower stall, and so <laughs> that's, that's what and Wilson Wilson was the name of our funnel. Wilson is the name of a famous <laughs> fish song, and so we would queue up Wilson on the CD player, and the beer the the beer bong would hold two full beers. And then you would you would do your quick little like a uh, beer bong in, in the shower stall. Sure, would just, like, you know, get ready for, a... <laughs> for math class. <laughs> uh, so that or my my highbrow stuff was was St. Pauli Girl or uh, Red Stripe. Like those were my like Friday night. I'm going to splurge on a twelve pack kind of things. What about? Do you guys ever have any college beers that you were fond of, dude? You know, I started on. Um, like Miller Light, um, <laughs> because again, <laughs> cheap, right? Volume, yeah. and uh, then switched to Killian's Irish Red. Oh yeah, and uh, enjoyed that quite a bit. So that that's like the primo stuff, even though it's only what five ninety nine for a six pack. I mean, back at back in like the uh, the latter portion. What is that like the the early aughts, like O two to O five ish, like Killian's was a respectable brew. Like I would get the six pack of the cans, or not the six packs, like the four pack pints. Like oh, you yeah. get those. Like when I first got here to Kentucky, you could go to Liquor Barn and get that, and I thought that was like the bomb. That was like fancy beer because I was drinking like Irish Reds. It was red. Like, o five. I'm like ooh, sophisticated. Mm. <laughs> let me adjust my monocle, good sir. 
me and the uh, <laughs> me me and the rest of the Irish nation being so sophisticated. <laughs> I'm reading my James Joyce here. Yeah. No more bathtub gin for me, ma. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, John, what are you drinking? Well, I have some more of the Boiler Black Ale from West Lafayette, Indiana. And if I decide to get rowdy later, I'll have some wild turkey. Have I shown you my new tumbler that I, I'm going to be drinking? Show from? us. Oh, dude, that's nice. awesome. It's in early times. Yeah, I found it in an antique store in Lincoln, Nebraska. And I was like, yeah, I'll buy that. That's killer, dude. Yeah, I'm pretty happy. So I'm going to try that tonight. Awesome. It says early times on it. For those of you who can't see through the podcast. So have you had the uh, the early times bottled in bond that's out mm-hmm. now these days? I mm-hmm. feel like I have before, maybe with you. This guy right over here, I'm pointing yeah. for the people that can't see over to Josh. He's got a bottle. We've got some. Yeah. Uh, uh, my uh, colleague at work, James, bought me a, a bottle of it. Um, it was very, very kind of him. And uh, it's it's pretty nice. It's pretty tasty. Kind of smooth for a hundred proof. It's good stuff. It's like the the big leader bottle too, mm-hmm. which I think is cool. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. I think I just got early times confused with ancient age, which we drank once on the podcast when we first started. I feel uh, like, yes. oh. yeah, yeah, they're different. which is a very different bourbon. <laughs> it was it was uh, uh, bottled between the times when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise <laughs> right. of the sons of Arius. Ancient age is like the uh, the 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 the. Like the gutter or the runner of the the Buffalo Trace Distillery, like everything that like hits the floor, they have the push mops and yeah. they push it in, and that's the ancient age. It's still <laughs> squeeze it out, drink and squeegee it. into it. It, yeah. it is harsh. Uh, I think ancient age might be the harshest bourbon I've ever had, but I haven't had it in a while. And I, I for yeah. for six ninety nine. No, it's it's drinkable, man. It's like the uh, it's it's not benchmark. It's more like the. It's more like the 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 vob or or something like mm-hmm. yeah. It's higher proof, right? It's not eighty. Uh, it varies. Like they have something called ancient ancient age, which is silly. Like here in Kentucky, we can't <laughs> even flip and get it because it's not. I don't know. Like you would think that you could get all kinds of bourbon in Kentucky, but it's hard to get some of that stuff here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like that's their that's the better of the ancient age, and you can't you, we can't find it here, but. Regular old ancient age, I think, is just standard like ninety proof, kind of like the Heaven Hill or the like the that kind of stuff. I think I'm going to go back to Old Crow one night for the Chromecast. <laughs> Man, this past summer I had this is not even bourbon. This is like sad, but we had a, a quick little uh, hangout with my wife and my little guy and myself. We went and hung out with some of a couple of uh, a couple sisters that that Liz is friends with from from college and. Uh, one of the sisters had a bottle of Kentucky Gentleman, which is like <laughs> like like pure grain alcohol mixed with like maybe twenty percent bourbon. It's it is, tinted, right? It, yes, it is rough. <laughs> it's not even real. It's not whiskey. It's just like it's a liquor, you know. Uh, that was some rough stuff. I'm not gonna go with a Kentucky Gentleman ever. Like oh, oh. Kentucky, <laughs> we serve hard liquor for hard men who want to get drunk fast. <laughs> That's that's right, JFK. <laughs> uh, but it's like like at least here, that's like seven bucks a bottle. You can get like legit straight bourbon for seven bucks a bottle. Yeah. Like that's the thing, Kentucky. We might not be able to get ancient ancient age, but you can get any your pick of the litter for a seven to ten dollar bottle of like just regular old bourbon. Yeah, it's usually in the spigot next to the Pepsi at any of your favorite fast food restaurants. So mm-hmm. that's I'm giving the. 
like up to you, the rest of the world here in Kentucky, we at least can get cheap bourbon. That's right. <laughs> we can't get the we can't get the best stuff because everybody seeks it out, but we can get the good stuff. That's like in the ten dollar out of my pocket. So that's what we're drinking, dude. I'm sorry, I no, no, no. Like this is how it Whoa. happens. This I feel like every episode <laughs> this, this season can't be a derail. This is the rail. Like, this is the rail. Don't... We're on. We're on track. This is the track now. Like that's what we like. I mean, we're staying. We're staying straight ahead. We're staying focused. Mm-hmm. Relatively, we're along the mean. We're <laughs> yeah. It's what people want to hear. I don't know about that. I apologize to anybody that gets frustrated hearing Luke talk on the microphone, but there's is, probably is, a fast forward button. There is a fast forward button, <laughs> but it does amuse me to think about the person who's listening to this and going, just get on with it. <laughs> uh, well, fine. I'll get on with it. The person that's listening and yelling at us. Let's do a little favor. One of our favorite activities. Jazzercise. Yes. Or is it called? One day. I like that. That was like the prog rock one thing. <laughs> I like that one too. I like all the one thing stingers. It- it's they're all really great. <laughs> we we don't deserve them. We no, so, we don't. You're right. So <laughs> Rob, thanks again, buddy. We we really love them. It's our one of our favorite things is to pick out what we're going to use on the show. <laughs> so you want to go first, Josh? Yeah, sure. I'll go first. Um, I have been listening to some different types of uh, ambient metal lately. And this is directly correlated to Luke sort of talking about going to these various um, black metal shows here in Lexington at uh, the Best Friends Bar. Yeah, right. And then we took took uh, uh, an evening and went and and saw some uh, some death metal. Yeah, we saw some rude, like old school death metal. Yeah, so that was a lot of fun. And I've been thinking about the types of, of metal that I've been listening to. And it's it's all fairly safe. Like I, I listen to power metal, I listen to stoner rock, and and that's the type of music I I tend to listen to when I want something a little heavier. And so I wanted to branch out, and I I started looking for uh, ambient sort of black metal bands to to check out, and I found this band called Hermoder, H E R M O D R, and I think they're from Iceland. And they have uh, an album that just was released a few weeks ago called Forest Sky. And it's it's rad. Uh, I've been listening to it a lot here lately. Uh, Luke and I went around town the other day, went to the used record shop, yeah. uh, checked out a used bookstore, um, and had her motor sort of playing us uh, around uh, around town. That was our theme song, our theme music. <laughs> And it's just, it's great. I've been listening to it in the office, uh, in the lab while I'm preparing for the Chromecast. It's, it's just, uh, the, the cool thing about it is, and, and this is not new to anyone who listens to black metal, but the, the various growls and, and squeals are sort of a little lower in the mix as compared to say death metal. And 
as, as Luke likes to describe it, it's another instrument, like it's part of the instrumentation. And so it just is this soundscape that you can get lost in. And, uh, I, I will, uh, definitely post a link to where you can listen to, um, forest sky. Uh, they have a band camp, uh, her motor has a band camp. And, uh, I, I, if you like metal, I think you'll dig them. Yeah, man, you, you played it for me and I've listened to that album a couple times over since then. It's really good. It's just, it's spacious. It's lots of, it's not necessarily like, uh, fast or like the crazy, like tremolo picking stuff that you see in some of like the more like brutal, uh, black metal. It's. It, like ambient the way you describe it it's atmospheric it's it's melodic it's it's almost like a mix of like some uh not doom but more like power metaling mm-hmm. like yeah like judas priesty sort of like tunes it's, mm-hmm. it's really pretty accessible that's, that's, that's cool. what it's cool that's what led me to them is it, it is kind of like baby's first death metal or something um <laughs> and that's not to say anything derogatory about the band they their compositions are just out oh, of this man. world it's it's solid yeah Good stuff. <laughs> so, so if you like uh, death metal or you like metal overall, and you want something to just jam to while you're trying to focus on something, uh, you can't go wrong with Hair Motor. So we start with some music. Move on to Luke. What do you got? So, uh, my one thing is going to be a movie that I watched a couple nights ago. I watched the movie "You Were Never Really There." Uh, or actually, it's You Were Never Really Here, which the title of the movie is a little bit funky. Uh, if you know this movie, it's on the basis of, uh, I mean, maybe you've seen it, uh, but it, but if you haven't seen it, you might recognize the poster, which is like Joaquin Phoenix with a big beard and maybe his hoodie pulled up and he's carrying a hammer in his hand. So it's, it's, a, it's a psychological like thriller. It is a great, flick in my opinion i really did enjoy the heck out of this movie i didn't watch the movie uh what is it called uh we need to talk about kevin Mm -hmm. like i never i never had a chance to watch that that was on my list and i still haven't checked it out but the director of that her name's lynn ramsey so she did that and then this is uh a newer movie by her and it's it's great man it is one of those movies that has like sparse dialogue a lot of heavy uh content and just in fairly it goes in fairly dark places uh the cinematography is beautiful it has like bits of like punctuated hyperviolence in it but in and of itself the movie is fairly uh plodding and and like meditative and it just it, i really i loved it it's it's only about 90 minutes so it I use the term plotting. It's not really a plotting movie. It's meditative and it's quiet in moments. And then there's crazy moments of like, just, uh, just like unspooling, uh, violence and craziness that kind of happens with this within a span of just a few seconds. But the movie is a tight hour and a half and it, it's exactly what it needs to be. It tells the story it needs to be. Uh, I would say it's like equal parts. Uh, I mean, it's not, Liam Neeson and Taken. It's it's a lot of that kind of. Is that right? Is that mm-hmm. Liam Neeson? Yeah. So like Liam Neeson is like the the very cool dude that's got the very cool skills and he's the dad that's gonna get revenge. Joaquin Phoenix is like the murder hobo that's gonna do that shit because he's just a, a damaged dude. Uh, and so that's kind of the premise, but it's like equal parts of uh, 
I mean, there's a little bit of like old boy that's wrapped up in it. Hmm. There's a little bit of, uh, I would say even like the, the craziness of like the political machinations of like Sin City or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a fairly, it's a fairly bleak movie in terms of like how it paints civilization and like the bureaucracy and government, that kind of stuff. But it's just, it's really, it's really good. It's ambi, oh, like drive. It's, it's equal parts of drive, like sort of, sort of mixed into that too. So, you know, it's, it's a lot of those quiet bits of meditation by the, the damaged protagonist and then, he reacts, and so I don't know. I, I loved it, so I would say check that out. Sweet, I saw. I think you can stream it on Amazon Prime. Yeah, so that's how I watched it. Oh, and then one more thing, I would say that it's a fairly, uh, it's a fairly feminist movie, which I I enjoyed. Like, there's a little bit of uh, flipping expectations on its head, and I think it's a great sort of counter to a movie like Taken in the final act. And I guess that's all I'll say. If anybody. Mm-hmm. If anybody wants to talk about the movie, you too, if you guys watch it and we, we talk about it after the fact, oh, we can't, <laughs> but hit you any, up. anybody else hit me up on the chats. Uh, <laughs> it's, I think it is a, a fairly interesting uh, conversation piece of a movie too, from that regard. Sweet. It sounds like an ambient uh, album and an ambient film. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, right on. It is. <laughs> That's a good comparison. John, John. All right, so music, movies, I'm going to do comics. That's the trifecta of the Chromecast, right? Except for literature, I guess, is missing. But uh, my comic stack was getting really tall. I had kind of fallen behind on my DCBS reading, and so I was flipping through some of them, and I stumbled on a couple of issues that I bought called Electric Warriors from the DC Universe. It's a six-issue miniseries by Steve Orlando and Travel Foreman as the artist. And it's set in the future after the Kamandi sort of epoch where humans were beasts and now animals are people. And now people are back sort of in the mix. They're kind of equal to the beasts again. And so they're fighting over Earth. And on this planet, you get to nominate somebody to be your electric warrior, which means they go to the Citadel. And instead of having intergalactic wars with other planets, you have champions fight each other to determine what resources go where basically and earth is sending two emissaries one is from the beast world and one is a human and it's just really trippy futuristic very kirby-esque and it's got pretty trippy looking art if you guys want to look at it oh cool yeah thinking that so uh i like it it's weird it's very comic booky and if you're into that kind of stuff you should check it out i'm seeing here it's written by a doug Munch? No, uh, Steve Orlando is the. Oh, writer. you said that. Why am I pulling? Why is it? Why is Wikipedia saying that? Maybe he did a previous. I don't know. Oh, that was the eighties, like when he was writing Moon Knight. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's like I, I googled it and I'm pulling it up here. Okay, yeah. So I, I should have prefaced it by saying that. Yeah, or Electric Warriors. This is sort of a reboot of a yeah. previously created concept. So who, like, what has Orlando done? Do you know? Uh, what has he done? That's a good question. I can't really tell you off the top of my okay. head. I feel like he did some swamp thing. Okay. I won't swear to it, though. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to call you out too much, dude. No, no. Uh, it says Orlando. he's done Batman, Supergirl, and Justice League, as well as the Midnighter series that came out a few years ago. Oh, cool. Uh, Batman and Robin Eternal. Okay. Yeah. He's done a few things. Cool. 
Martian Manhunter, it looks like. He did yep. 12 issues uh, of that, like recently, like right now. Yes, that is also good. I uh, picked that up, <clears throat> and it's a very different take on the Martian Manhunter. He's sort of a crooked cop on Mars is the cool. opening bit. Yeah. So, so, so Steve Orlando's got some weird ideas, it seems like. So Mars has not been sort of subsumed by the White Martians? Is that He's having, he's having flashbacks. Uh, he's ah, working okay. a case in Colorado in his human guise, and he starts to sense something Martian. And he has these flashbacks to when he was a manhunter on Mars. And so you see him in his actual police career that he had there. And it's a bit of a retcon and turning him into a crooked cop that would work people for protection money on Mars. Cool. Yeah. That's pretty different. It is very different. I I wasn't sure how I'd feel about it because I love the Martian Manhunter. And I think he's a cool character kind of as is. But I'm always up for a new thing. So let's see some new interpretations. I like the Martian Manhunter too, but I only really know him from Justice League. I've never read a solo book. Have you, Luke? I have not. No, that's that's there, the way that I know him. There's a good series from John John Ostrander that was out in like the late '90s, early 2000s about the Manhunter and kind of his early life as well. But uh, so Electric Warriors, check it out if you like weirdness. It's very Morrison esque meets Kirby esque meets some weird concept I've never heard of from the DC universe. That sounds, that sounds cool, man. I like, <laughs> I like how, how crazy and psychedelic it sounds. Yes. So when we combine all of our three things, what do we end up with? One thing. That is the correct answer. All right, guys. Well, how about we talk about our, our legit content for the episode? We're going to talk about blood of the gods another El Borak story. Blood of the gods. I'm down. This is the top-notch story again. <laughs> it's metal. It is, it is some top-notch black metal. Uh, El Borak. <laughs> Asiatic Middle Eastern uh, adventures. Murder adventure. <laughs> There's a lot more murder in this one than there has been in the last few stories, I think. And crazy, It's got too. the stibbity stabbing. <laughs> yeah, there's some stabbing. There's some there's, uh, throats getting torn out. Yeah. Some shooting. There's some there's there's a hint a suggestion of perhaps some supernaturalness and then it's explained away but I like that a spider uh, person in a cave mm, so July of thirty five top notch that's what we're dealing with here okay so uh, blood of the gods it's a Robert E Howard El Borak story uh, somebody give us a, a fifty word elevator pitch story summary I'll give it a shot do you want or unless you want to no okay El Borak hears that his friend Al-Wazir, who is living a hermit's life in religious retreat in the desert, might be in danger because some folks want to steal his blood of the gods, which are some priceless rubies that uh, allegedly he still has possession of. And it is a race for El-Borak to make it to Al-Wazir and warn him of the danger before these people led by the British Hoxton make it to the caves and uh, put El Borak's friend Al-Wazir in jeopardy. Yeah. Did we get an unlikely team up? Sort of happens between Hoxton and and El Borak. Mm -hmm. And uh, hijinks ensue even further, right? That's right. (laughs) This This is a story with lots of fighting. There's no like... 
uh, hints of fighting the way that we saw like within the 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 cleat the the Cossack stories. Like, right, there's legit fights. <laughs> and even even looking back and comparing this story to the previous El Borak story we talked about, um, that tale was a far more political, politically motivated sort of, I don't know, siege story, right? Like it, it's, it's a lot more slow. It's a lot more plotting. Mm -hmm. It's a lot more grandiose in its scale. Whereas this is very intimate. It's funny though, that you use the term siege though, because this does have a hint of the Alamo at the end too. Like we still get like the forces of the mini against like a small cutthroat force uh specifically like two dudes slash one crazy dude like that's, that's what you see like it's it's two kind of like dudes. it's like 2.5 dudes versus like 50 plus dudes and it's so it's still like that asymmetrical skirmishing that's happening but yeah this is like without the political angles of the other story mm-hmm. and it's all about it's all about the cheddar yeah and revenge yeah. Which has been a through line for these stories, I think. Yeah. El Borat could probably roughly translate to the revenge at this point <laughs> in Chromecast shorthand. The swift revenge. The swift revenge. It seems like I, I think he even says it at some point in the story that in his time in the Middle East, he has made many friends, but just as many people who want to kill him in the same country. Right. So he's he's definitely on the lamb from some folks, he gets a camel shot out from under him. I thought that was a pretty interesting moment. Yeah, definitely. There are a lot of, uh, a lot of cool cinematic action scenes in this one. Yeah. Is this the one you would turn into a movie if you were going to make an El Borak movie? I think this would make a badass like Western, like a, like a, like a, a non-typical like Arabian Western. Like this absolutely would fit the, the bill of, of, uh, a movie type story, you know, you could just jump right in and assume that your characters and your, your audience knows what a cool dude Oborak is. And like the race begins, like mm-hmm. everything that happens through the middle of the story, like it, it has the pacing and the, the set pieces and the stages of the play that I think would lend itself towards like a movie presentation. You got a MacGuffin with some, some magic rubies, uh-huh. ancient magic rubies. Yeah, right. Uh, and Al Wazir. Yeah, treachery and insanity. And it fits almost, if you squint and look at it carefully, I think it fits a three-act structure, wherein the first, sure. first act is El Borak getting himself to the caves, the second act is teaming up with Hoxton to fight off the siege, and the third act is the inevitable fight and conflict with Hoxton and the rescue of all Wazir. Yeah. Let's make this movie. Okay, I'm down. All right, we got the principal cast here. You're El Borak. Lucas? No, you are. I want to be all Wazir. Okay, you're all Wazir. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be the thin, effete British man with, who's good with a sword. Uh-huh. Hoxton. Yep. Hoxton. And you can also be the camel. I love being a camel. So one of the things that I really did like about this story was like racing camels. Yeah. Like the, the, the white, the, the white camels or whatever the terms were that were used for that. I like, I like that depiction. I like that, that sort of balanced depiction of the, the camel a day. 
The camel. Nice. The camels can be fast. Camels can oh, be man, slow. Oh man, you used a scientific term. That's what I like. That's the that's the family. <laughs> that's the family, bro. Camels are. This is a rabbit hole. I, I need to avoid it. Never mind. <laughs> no, let's go. Talking about camels. Well, camels, there's some evidence that camels maybe didn't evolve in desert environments, right? This, well, so this is the thing that I talk about in my mammalogy class. The cool thing about the camels when I get to the camelidae, they are uh, the cool poster child for a species group that evolved in North America. And so, right. of course, here in North America, we unfortunately don't have any camels, which is a little bit of a sad face. Uh, we wish we did. But the camels that are in the New World are the vaccaro and the alpaca and the llama, which are down right. in South America. South America. And then, of course, the camels that we appreciate in the Old World. The dromedary. The dromedary camels. And the Bactrian camels went the other way, like across Alaska into Asia. So while many of the other ungulate species were crossing from Asia into North America, crossing the la- across the land bridge, Bering Strait, the Bering Strait, yeah. So so while we get all these crazy like bovids and. Uh, all of the various other ungulates that we now have here in North America. There's mm. relatively few of them if you look at species patterns. We don't have any camels. Our camels went either south. They're like checking it out west. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they did not... Uh, they're, they're not natives to like desert environments. They're yeah. natives to like the Great Plains of like Pleistocene North America, which is pretty badass. Yeah, May- maybe even pretty icy, right? Yeah. Yeah. So their their flat hooves are are more than capable of walking on snow or sand, and they're 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 just the uh, they got those spindly legs that sort of minimize their surface area and like their you know yeah their sort of passage of of uh, of, of blood out to those extremities. And we got that strong central like torpedo shaped big body in the middle, and that thick layer of fat, those humps mm-hmm. that uh, can insulate them in cold environments or prevent them from drying out in arid environments. Oh, those humps. Those lovely camel humps. Man, camel cats. So they're Nebraska? Anyway, yeah. That would be where they're from? I think so. Interesting. Yeah. Welcome to Camel Cast. <laughs> the Nebraskan Bactrians. <laughs> Dude, that would be an awesome name for uh, a brand new hockey team out in Nebraska. Oh, okay, that right would be that. sweet. Like I can see it. Like the camels on some uh-huh. sweet skates. Yep. Anyway, that's the that, thing. That's camels. <laughs> camels are cam- camels are a cool example of pre-adaptation. If you're really into talking about evolution, which obviously we are, but maybe you're not. So let's talk about the pulp action in the remainder of the story. Well, that was one of the things that I liked about the story was the racing camels. Okay. So who else has like a a thing that they dug about this story that they want to bring up? I would throw out that I really dug. The part where we get to Al-Wazir's cave, and it's sort of like a civilized cave, if I understand it correctly, sort of like a, a India, Pueblo Indian sort of thing. Well, who were the people that lived in the cliffs? The, like a cliff, a cliff dweller. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's got networks and honeycombs inside of it that you can go between, and... I am creeped out by caves. I'm not like scared, scared of caves, but like the idea of going into the dark and not knowing what's around you, but feeling it around you. And then him discovering that there's so many connectors between like, he can't really protect himself because yeah, whatever's in there can come to him and knows how to get there. And he doesn't. So I like that part, that atmospheric part where we get this creepy cave setting that he tries to fall asleep in, but almost gets his throat torn out. 
it, it kind of has a feel like the whole last portion of the story that last act feels like just guerrilla warfare through and through like mm-hmm. there's there's no safety because you might be attacked from sort of any angle that really comes across cool. how about you josh um one of the things i liked about this story is that in addition to various commentaries about civilization and barbarism that we can get into one of the things that pops out here is something that is kind of uh, Jack Londonian. And that is the man versus the environment. And this, this notion of El Borak versus the desert is just as important as El Borak versus any of the, the, the human adversaries that it comes across. And at the end of section three, and and I'm reading this in the, uh, the Del Rey, uh, Robert E. Howard, El Borak, and other desert adventures that I got for Christmas from my brother. Um, the last paragraph of section three, just prior to section four, the sun rocked its slow, torturing way up and down the sky. Twilight deepened into dusk, and the desert stars winked out, and on, grimly on, plotted that solitary figure, pitting an indomitable will against the merciless immensity of thirst-haunted desolation. That is <laughs> awesome it is and and it conjures just the perfect image of this 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 man jaw set you know he knows what he's up against he's got a rifle with just a few cartridges and he's got a water skin and he knows it's a long way to the caves where he's trying to get to to save his friend um oh man that that is to me the thing that won me over for for uh, on this story that in the the cinematic action, but just just you can see some of Howard's influences that you don't often see. I think, at least in terms of Jack London and how his influence might come across in a Howard story. And that paragraph right there jumped out at me as as being particularly Londonian. I thought that was very evocative as well. Um, did it call to mind anything for you personal, like any day? outside or in the field or working or anything like that, where you just had to do the same thing. You set your jaw against the task. There, there certainly were days during my PhD field work where, uh, you know, I had to hike a mile or so away from the truck and we get out to the, the site and realize we left a piece of equipment back in the truck and we can't do the work that we need to do without that piece of equipment. And so somebody's got to go back and get it. (laughs) <laughs> and since it's my project, it's me. So yeah, totally. Yeah. You just have to set your sights on the task at hand and, and get through it. Um, and I'm, I'm certain like it, it draws more parallels to me to like, I could see service people in the military kind of mm-hmm. taking this grim sort of, this is the task at hand. This is what I have to do. This is the mission and let's go. Like I've got what I need. Let's, let's do it. Um, which I, you know, have no experience with beyond, you know, the, the field work stuff, which I would hazard to say is not nearly quite as weighty. No, but there's a similar psychology to it. I would argue where you just go into the zone. You, your brain is like, okay, I have a thing to do. The thing must get done no yeah. matter what. Drink later, right. eat later, rest yep. later, work now. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting how that can be done to the human brain. 
and maybe how we take advantage of it militaristically. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Yeah. Luke, yeah. anything come to mind for you? Well, that was one of the, like, the way that you described it, Josh, as being uh, a, a, a Jack London-esque kind of kind of feel that was one of the things that I noted and and you read something that came <clears throat> slightly after a, a portion that I marked here in the text but the way that Elborax survival like it's very basic right like there's a statement here as he's coming up on the oasis and there's the various uh you know other folks at the the location that he can't he he needs to get there at the well of Khan uh, and he can't he can't get there right so there's mm-hmm. the statement that he slipped the limp bags from his shoulder cocked his rifle and went forward to kill or be killed not for gold not for the love of a woman not an ideal not a dream but as much for water as could be carried in a goat skin so to basically just like boil down a life and death struggle over the equivalent of like i don't know 16 or 32 ounces of water Mm -hmm. that's what that fight came down to like the entire sort of skirmish that plays out at the oasis and the deaths of multiple individuals all as a consequence of just i just need a couple bottle like a nalgene full of water like that's what it comes down to Mm -hmm. i like that and then you know later on you see this unlikely sort of allying between El Borak and Hoxton, mm-hmm. uh, the Englishman, and that's a base necessity. They both want to live. The only way they're going to live is if they sort of, if they lay in with one another. And so I like how this story strips down uh, man's morality just like to a bare survival instinct. I think that's a cool thing about this story that 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 resonated with me, I think, more than the other, the other Borak story, like the 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 El Borak story. This one gets at, I think, a cool, uh, moral sort of center mm-hmm. more than the other one. Yeah, I agree. And I I was thinking about like comparing this to the daughter of Ehrlich Khan, which we talked about. Like this could be uh, almost an Indiana Jones kind of adventure. Right. Like this one, though, the the blood of the gods is not an Indiana Jones-esque adventure. For all of the trappings that you would expect the hunt to be relied upon, like it, it, it really ultimately is not. Like, so, it's, it's not about fortune and glory. King. No. Like, yeah. <laughs> so these stories are, are very different. Yeah. Like if if you take a look at Ehrlich Khan and then what was the second story? Is it Hawk of the Hills? Hawk of the Hawk Hills. Of the Hills yeah. And then finally Blood of the Gods. It It is like you're moving down this trajectory from almost there's almost a wink and a nod in Ehrlich Khan that is completely missing here. Like this is an earnest story about surviving in the worst conditions with all odds against you that I think that story just did not really have. It's, it's a very different story compared to this. We get a bit of happiness at the end where Al Wazir comes out of his his stupor thanks to a crease from a bullet on the side of his head, and there's some like <laughs> winking and and giggling then. But it really is a very stark story up until that point. I really didn't take it as a a wink. I took it as a uh, all of this murder and death was for nothing. Like it is, it, I read it as being very nihilistic. 
Because he threw the rubies away? Or? He threw the rubies away, and the rubies were what Hoxton was killing people for. The rubies were driving him to Al-Wazir. The rubies would have led him to either kill Al-Wazir or, or be killed by him in his maddened state. They what about it. contrasting that with with Al-Wazir's failure in his meditations? So, I... I <sighs> I really think that the story initially gives you the impression that Howard is making the comment here that I don't know specifically, but he's saying that he's saying something about religion, right? That he's saying something about the, the inevitable sort of collapse of even really moral men doing something that they, you know, living somewhere where they really shouldn't be living doing something that only makes sense to them on a very personal and spiritual level. Yeah. And when I thought, Oh, this is Howard saying that all was ears journey, his meditative journey was pointless. I was really into that. And then when we found out that all was ear just kind of knocked himself silly because he was excavating the lower levels of the, 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 the labyrinthine mountain tunnels, I felt like it lost some of the power. That's the thing that I do not like about the story. The quick throwaway means by which Al-Wazir comes back to us and mm-hmm. that it's not a weightier statement, as you say. Like, you're you're spot on. Like, that, that, like, sort of, like, that takes some of the air out of the sails. Yeah. Because it it just seems like all wazir is is fitting into this atheistic um model for religion that Howard has established through the Conan stories and through the Solomon Kane stories that you know you, you try as you might but you just can't connect with anything else because maybe we're the only ones here and instead what we find out is that you know, those, those sentiments are missing and that all was ear just kind of knocked himself in the head. Yeah. And I guess that uh, I took a different tact with that. I, I saw it as, as a metaphorical awakening, like the violence that he sees in front of him knocks him out. The stupor is the, the love of meditation and the love of religion. Oh, okay. And then seeing, seeing what happens with Hoxton and El Borak and getting caught up in it. He's like awoken. And he sees that his meditations are all for naught, and he even says something: "I want to live in service to my fellow man, yeah. as you do in your in, in your own way. I can't help my, mankind by dreaming out here in the desert, which is a very Howardian thing. Like I need to yes, go back yeah. and actually engage with with the people like you, yes. and sort of saying the only real religion is what you are all about, which is survival and protecting your own. But doesn't it say that?" he was exploring the, the caves and he yeah. knocked himself in the head. Like, yeah. So his stupor wasn't really, but even that is sort of a metaphor. Like he's exploring this oh, ancient cave where okay. this other prophet went to and like, he just gets lost in it yeah. and it's not really worth anything. And it, it's just madness. You're the guru that, that has led me to this. Yeah. I, I that hadn't crossed yeah, my mind. Not a bit. <laughs> That's just my thought. I'm a follower of John. <laughs> the, the John Maybe I'm Dharma. giving Howard too much credit. No, you're leading us through the desert, man. 
<laughs> no, Anything that's that. That actually, no, that insight uh-huh. kind of changes things a little bit. I think. Yeah, yeah, I felt I felt similar to you, Josh. Like the way whenever those final beats and that final explanation from El Wazir came out, I thought, man, that's just a quick, tidy. It's, it's a Scooby Doo ending. Yeah. Oh yeah. It is. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. And I'd have gotten away with it if it wasn't for you crazy kids. If I hadn't have come back to it just then, right? Yeah. I mean, you almost, well, like, if he would have just totally been the gen, like, the, the gen and, like, murdered everybody and then just, like, uh, Elboric found his, like, crushed and, and destroyed, like, he ran off a cliff because of his own madness and, like, Elboric finds his dead body. That That would have been a far more nihilistic kind of ending yeah but i think it would have kept within the story too yeah but i like john's interpretation like john your your interpretation of these the the events of the ending of the story kind of bring it closer to my expectation and i hadn't thought of it like that so yeah that el borak is the one true religion (laughs) (laughs) yep that that he is the guru and all was here was mistaken he should have followed uh, our boy El Borak, <laughs> Gordon. He should have followed Gordon. Gordonism, <laughs> the Gordanian knot. That's right. What do we think of the rubies? What do we think of this as a plot device? Like, do you want more of the ruby history? Not at all. I nope. think it's no. great as a symbol. I think it's great as like a a symbol that that Hawkson is searching after, and I like the idea of it. Like, just as a, as <laughs> for like. As if they're just like, you know, paste like costume jewelry. They've been tossed aside. Like mm-hmm. the way that El Wazir says, "No, I, I cast those aside." Like I threw them off the side <laughs> of a boat into the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> way, way long ago, bro. They're they're nothing. Yeah, and they're the, the um, you know they're Alexander's riches from you know the the movie that, that we watched the, the, the man, man who, who would be, be king. king. Like, like it's that level of like import and riches mm-hmm. and they're just thrown off. I love that. Who would you get to play Hoxton? If we were really making this into a movie, uh, who's the guy that was in, he was the silly, like step brother or not step brother, uh, brother-in-law in the mummy. And he was also he was <laughs> he ran the Ludus in uh, Spartacus. You know who I'm talking about? He's in four weddings and a funeral too. I think. Okay. That was the sound of John googling. John Hanna. Okay, yeah. So I would cast John Hanna as Hoxton. I could see it. Like you get him on a a workout regimen. And, and you, you get like, he doesn't have to be completely built. Right. And you get him tone at least and believable. Like he, he's fast, he's wily, he's, and he, he does a pretty good job of playing kind of smarmy, especially in Spartacus. Uh, yeah, we cast him. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to whine out, weenie out like with a Christopher Nolan uh, casting, so I would nice. put uh, like a, what's his name, Cillian Murphy, Cillian oh, Murphy, ooh, yeah. and then of course the obligatory who's going to be my old Borak. It's going to be Tom Hardy. Like I would have okay. like, those two sort of like playing the, the the sides of the coin. Nice. Tom Hardy is built like El Borak is described. That's true. 
I think so. Like, he's not yeah. necessarily, like, a hulking figure. He's just a thick, thick Slab man. of man. Yeah. I don't yeah. want to fight in a cave with Tom Hardy. No. <laughs> and so I think Cilli- uh, is it Cillian? Killian uh, Killian, or Cillian? I'm Cillian not sure. Yeah. Murphy. But he, he would, like, he could play that, that guy. For sure. I think. Yeah. yeah. And he's got the, uh, the charisma to be both, mm-hmm. like, believable and just dead-eyed, cold-blooded, oh, yeah. I'm I'm betraying you, El Borak. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're buddies for now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Okay. Sounds fun to me. How about you, John? Uh, I'm going to go goofy. I'll, I'll cast Liam Neeson as Hoxton. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And El Borak. <laughs> and oh, he's dude. both. No, no. They were twins uh, separated at birth? I'll do Liam Neeson and I'll do James McAvoy as as El Borak if we're going all Brit. Oh, really? We're all not British, but all UK uh, type people. Okay. I could see I could see McAvoy being uh Hoxton too. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. he's he's got that that smarm factor too. That's a good point. He's, I like it. He's the bomb. Yeah. Anything else that we enjoyed about this story that we want to share with our our dozens of listeners that are still tuned in? <laughs> the tens and tens of <laughs> people tens. that haven't rage deleted this episode. <laughs> I think an hour we're doing ago. pretty good about this. I think so too. I'm, uh, I any, joke. If anybody, I kid. If anybody is rage rage purging the Chromecast from the feed this very moment, I would question why. Why? Just <laughs> there's not anything substantially different this moment than there was like three hours before in our catalog, or, or three years ago. <laughs> yeah, I would say what's wrong with you. Um, I wanted to get your guys' take. Now we've we've read. Three El Borak stories, and we've read some stories from uh, authors who influenced Howard or adaptations from authors who influenced Howard. How do you think El Borak stacks up in this uh, adventure story kind of environment? Like, as far as a character, as far as... uh, as far as a setting, like all of the, the various aspects of, of the El Borak stories. I'd have to say that the setting for me is really top notch, not just because that's the, the <laughs> books that okay. they've been published in, but I'm, I'm actually really fascinated now by Afghanistan and this sort of area that we've been working with, with El Borak. I went and bought a book about it at a half price and I'm planning on reading more about this history and seeing what, drew Howard to it. So I think that just like he does with a lot of his other stories, even though this is real and Conan and, and Cole are in fictional areas, he is a master of, of building the set and telling me this cool place that all the action is taking place in. So I would say that's what I've enjoyed the most about it. Comparing him to the others, I would say I've liked these more probably uh, than most of what the other things we've read, but they all had their charms as well, except for maybe the soul of a regiment. I feel like that was the one that we've all kind of felt the least appreciative of including perhaps in the season. But um, I like El Borak. I like these stories. I'm glad that we did this. I think that this story, while it is my favorite of the El Borak stories we've read, could have used an editor like Farnsworth Wright to have told Howard, Hey, you need to cut this by about a quarter. Okay. 
you need to cut it down. Um, I think it's good. I think it's a little meandering. Yeah, I I agree with you. I think this is my favorite El Borac story too. The same way that that you've expressed that, Josh. I think that uh, of the stuff that we've read so far, so of of the things that we've read so far, I like the the lamb stories, the 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 classic stories, mm-hmm. the best because they've been different. My criticism with this Howard character is that it's not quite as motivating to me as Solomon Kane. Like if we're talking about retribution and we're talking about vengeance, mm-hmm. the the way that the Solomon Kane stories are painted up to me, I don't know. They're 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 more fantastic just by the necessity, like of of the the setting and the way those stories are told. They're mm-hmm. they are a bit. Well, not a bit. They're they're sword and sorcery. This is you know sword and history type stuff that we're dealing with here, and so um, I, I enjoy these stories, but also they don't necessarily have the imagination that the that the the pure like the more fantastic stories have. It's the lore, yeah. I think, um, at least for me that draws me to the Solomon Kane and the Conan stories more. But I think the aspect like Howard playing up the aspect of look at this man, he's against the desert. Look how hard it would, it would be to live in the desert to survive for even a day. Can you imagine? Look how hard this man is. And so I think that this story, because it's disassociated from a lot of the political Mm-hmm. like scenery mm-hmm. gives it more power. The fact that we're like talking about the importance of an oasis, mm-hmm. the importance of like caverns on the hills, you know, those things have more weight because we are talking about greed and unlikely team teaming ups because we have to survive and revenge and retribution, like all of those things, like apart from the political trappings. And it it makes me wonder if this isn't Howard expressing more of his Howardness and less of the Mundiness and less of the, um, lambness, you know, less of his heroes, less of his influences and more of his own take. That's a good point on it. Um, and I know I said like this, this paragraph reminds me of, of London, but like, even at that, we still have a lot of blood and thunder in the story that we didn't really call out, you know, line by line. No, some of the, some of the various like fight scenes are just super intense. Like the, the statement where, uh, I, I forget exactly how it goes, but you've got Hoxton and El Borak and they are, it's, it's the comparison that these two, they're enemies, but they are so synced up. Like they know there's an imaginary line in mm-hmm. their in their firing uh, uh, galleys, and, and like how they're sort of like partitioning out the the downhill slope. That everything to the left is El Borak, everything to the right is Hoxton, and those two dudes are so precise, and they know exactly what they're doing. Every shot is is made to count. And it's just crazy to think about like the, the lives that are lost on the page here. Like this is a story that just oozes with death and consequence, like of, (laughs) of, of 
every individual. Like mm-hmm. the, so many people are murdered in this story. So many people are dropped in the story. And these dudes, uh, Hoxton and El Borak, they are, they're, uh, they're mechanics like at their craft. Did, and I want to ask this to both of you guys. Did that fight scene, the final conflict between Hoxton and Gordon, remind you guys of the the way in which the boxing stories were composed yeah i thought that too yeah yeah it was was that for sure the shutter up the arm and all that kind of stuff Mm. yeah i i was i was struck by how it reminded me of you know costigan uh holding up his guard and and remarking thinking about how his arms were were going numb from from the rain of blows that were falling on him and just how he, uh, he being El Borak in this story, was able to read the feint that Hoxton delivered and how he responded to it in, in the lethal way that won the fight. It, it just screamed Costigan to me. It, it's just a more, a more lethal and a more serious approach to Howard's understanding of the scientific nature of fights. It's far more personal than the other authors that we've read this season, whether it's Lamb or Mundy, uh, just calling those two fellows out, you know, because we didn't actually read, like, the Kipling sure. Kipling story, so yeah. so we don't have any basis there. But it my, comes through the Houston lens. Yeah, my impression is that that's a bit grander, but, you know, Howard writes the very personal, visceral, one-on-one, mono-a-mono fight, <laughs> and we did not necessarily see that with the lamb and with uh, the Monday stories. I mean, we did see like individuals dying and individuals killing one another, but I don't know. There just wasn't the, the blood and the thunder and the viscera, like the way that we've talked about it, Mm -hmm. the gravity of it, right? Like really that, like the consequence of it, the fact that like these, like at the Oasis, like prior to getting even to the caverns, like you feel for the, 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 the the Bedouin or the 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 native that's there when El Borak like when he shoots the camels mm-hmm. and he's in that fatalistic like ha 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 like dude you don't even know I got my whole my whole clan and they yeah. are they are gonna rain down hellfire on you tonight I don't even care about myself like you get that everything about the mentality of that 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 personality and that culture like summed up in a very personal like just a couple lines it's yeah. gone i'm dead but so are you <laughs> yeah. <Like>. <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah like it, this is a very this this is a story that had a had a lot of powerful scenes to it mm-hmm. i think it lends to cinematic perspective so overall we say read it i think so of your El Borax, man, this this rates up there pretty high for me man. <laughs> yeah i, w- I would Up's even say skip the other two and start with this one and then if you like this one, go back if you haven't read the other ones and, and check them out. But for my money, and I know we're, we're taking a small sample here because there's a whole Del Rey collection full of El Borac stories. But there's only a handful, though, right? They're I mean- long. They're, they're quite long. And that's, that's why I said it, it's, it, it strikes me as Howard needed a, a more firm editor. So I mean, we did not read Country of the Knife. That's in my collection. That's an El Borak story that we did not read. Yeah. Uh, but we read Hawk of the Hills, Daughter of Erlik Khan, and Blood of the Gods. 
So I think we've read like half of the Elborak stories. But not Three-Bladed Doom, Sons of the Hawk, Son of the White Wolf, presumably. Right. The Coming of Elborak. Yeah. There are several that we didn't read, but we read three of the five that were published in his lifetime or approximately within his lifetime. Yeah. Right. And This this gets my top. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, this is my favorite of the Elborak stories we've read. What about you, John? I would say so, yeah. Uh, I like the politics of the the last one that we read, but there is something about the stark nature versus man, Bear grills kind of thing going on here that <laughs> that is nice. Yeah. He didn't drink his own pee, but... Unfortunately. Well, you don't know. You don't know what he true. did. That's true. You don't know. <laughs> Not like us. It gl- <laughs> it glosses over. Well, I am having hands. <laughs> the sky blue ball, sky blue, sky blue waters. waters. Of, I don't know what, like a West tonight, like yeah, peeing into a can. <laughs> <laughs> Steve's from Wisconsin, or or a, a Minnesotan, or a Minnesotan, Minnes- or a Nebraskan. I don't know. Midwest. If people wanted to yell at us for making fun of Ham's beer, where could they do that at on the internet, Josh? Are you trying to end this episode? Well, no, they- I, I was. I thought that was a good segue. <laughs> that is, I was trying I like to take it. advantage of it. Yes, like, you're right. Like I'm, your style, dude. I apologize profusely. I hope you accept my apology. I do, of course, just- without caution or. <laughs> I cherish your friendship. I cherish your friendship as well. How many hams have you eaten and drank? Uh, this is my second ham. Which oh. means I've had uh, 32 ounces of ham. 32 ounces of ham straight down your gullet. Yep. Uh, they can find us on the web at thecromcast.blogspot.com. They can email us. We are thecromcast at gmail.com. They could call us and look, listen, listen. If you call us and you leave a voicemail and you also subsequently leave your address and you give us some feedback, we will mail you copies of king of the bastards and the lost level by brian keen well one of because we're gonna give these out oh right whoever ring in you're gonna get one one or the other the first one you might get is the lost level by brian keen first in the series and the second one is king of the bastards by brian keen and stephen shrewsbury yep and then we have What's the other bits of swag that we have to give away, too? We got a couple of bookmarks. Uh, I've got some Solomon Kane books I'll mail you. Yep. Uh, I feel like if you come in fifth place in the call-in, I'm going to give you something from John's mystery drawer. Ooh, it could be a half-used roll of duct tape. Could be. <laughs> could be a DeWalt Impact Drill instruction manual. Wow. Uh, Signed, of course, by the Chromecast. I, I mean, see. We have a we have a variety of yes, of, of yeah. tomes that we will that we will get in the mail. We're we're cleaning out the coffers here at the end of the season, and the idea here is we want to uh, get some get some materials that we've we've reviewed previously out there to because, you, yeah, and your feedback. And if you get them, you have to take a selfie with it and put it on the internet. Dude, you're wow. making this. That's a lot no, of rules. All all we need is a voicemail, and <laughs> in your in your and statement, blood. tell us your uh, your your mailing address. And apologies if you're over the over the ponds, but uh, CONUS, right? Like continental yeah. United States. That's what we got to have, you guys. I'm sorry, no man, Jim. It's it's what two forty eight. We're gonna do like media mail. We're gonna send this stuff yeah. out. 
cheap a, a book style like so give us your mailing address and unfortunately you need to be like if you're from alaska if you're from hawaii puerto rico we or, will deliver it by hand when we get <laughs> off an airplane john will will fly to you that's that's yes. the statement that's what i'm hearing I've recently here. received my pilot's license <laughs> nice i will fly to your house but we actually have our first two winners because we already put out a call for this and so we are going to unveil those voicemails right here. Right, Luke? Yep. Hey, comrades. Uh, this is Zach from Cleveland, Ohio. I was just uh, calling in to say how much I enjoyed the podcast and how great you guys are. Um, I just recently had a friend who I'm trying to introduce to Sword and Sorcery Fiction, and I highly recommend that he listen to the Cromcast. So that's awesome. Um I know you guys were doing The Road to the East. There's a really great uh, Cleet the Cossack story where he goes to find the grave of uh, Genghis Khan, which is really interesting. It's actually in that big book of adventure stories you guys were talking about on this episode. Um, and again, just thank you all very much for the great work. And it's really awesome to hear somebody go through these works and give them uh, an eye and just uh, have a good take on them. Um, also, I don't know if you'd ever considered it, but you could do a Road of the Imitator where you do like uh, Conan mockery, not mockeries, I would say pastiche, Conan pastiche. I know the Henry Kuttner, um Elac of Atlanta stories are really, really good. So I don't know if you'd want to check those out or some of the Lynn Carter, Thongor of Lemuria books are very, very interesting reading. Uh, I wouldn't call it good, but it's interesting. Um, again, this is Zach from Cleveland, and uh, thank you all very much. Hi, Cromcast. I'm a big fan of your podcast. Uh, I've been listening since the beginning. Uh, I was wondering if you guys had ever considered looking at uh, Ramsey Campbell's uh, fantasy hero uh, Ryer stories. It's like R-Y-R-E. Uh, they're very good. Uh, there's even what the sustenance of Hoke uh, has to do with... Uh, uh, mind-altering ale that come out of these space trees, which would be kind of cool. And then there's one where uh, Ryder encounters a, a duplicate of himself trying to kill him. But uh, they're in a collection called Far Away and Never. Uh, there's a few others in there, too, but the Ryder stories are really good. Um, thanks. Uh, enjoy the podcast. Here's the thing. We want you to call us. That number is 859-429-CROM. And if you leave your address, we'll mail you either some garbage from our junk drawer or some nice books from Apex Publishing. Or or we've got other other stuff, too. And, and other publishers. Yeah. But Doesn't have to be a Apex. Stick. A cheese stick? Just a, wow. Cheese. You do have two shrink wrap cheese sticks there. <laughs> uh, so give us a call. And follow us on social media. We're... Uh, at the Chromecast on Twitter, we are uh, facebook.com slash the Chromecast on Facebook. And you can listen to us on pretty much any podcasting platform at this point. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Google Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify. and Spotify. That's right. We're on Spotify now. Which they means all want a piece of the Chromecast. We are big time. I don't know if that's what that means, but I like to think that. So. That That is all, and we will see you a little bit further down the road to the east with what story? We're going to be talking about Sowers of Thunder. We're bringing it, we're bringing it home. It's all the, about Thor. The Thunder? How he makes the clouds. The Thunder? 
the lightning and the thunder. Toots, thunder. Apparently, I can't do I can't do that longer than that. Try. Like my my lips, they just do can't it. handle it. Yeah, they can. This is the Chromecast ASMR segment, apparently. <laughs> and you've been listening to the Chromecast. Out in the West Texas town of El Paso, I fell in love with a Mexican girl. Nighttime would find me in Rose's Cantina, music would play and Felina would whirl. Blacker than night were the eyes of Felina, wicked and evil while casting a spell. My love was deep for this Mexican maiden I was in love but in vain I could tell One night a wild young cowboy came in Wild as the West Texas wind Dashing and daring a drink he was sharing With wicked Felina, the girl that I love so in anger, I challenged his right for the love of this maiden. Down put his hand for the gun that he wore. My challenge was answered in less than a heartbeat. The handsome young stranger lay dead on the floor. Out through the back door of roses I ran. Out where the horses were tied. like it could run up on its back and away I did ride just as fast as I could from the west Texas town of El Paso back to the badlands of New Mexico back in El Paso my life would be worthless everything's gone in life nothing is left it's been so long since I've seen the young maiden my love is stronger than my fear of death I saddle up and away I did go Riding alone in the dark Maybe tomorrow a bullet may find me Tonight nothing's worse than this pain in my heart And at last here I am Off to my right I see five mounted cowboys Off to my left right a dozen more Shouting and shooting, I can't let them catch me I have to make it to Rose's back door Something is dreadfully wrong, for I feel A deep burning pain in my side Though I am trying to stay in the saddle I'm getting weary, unable to ride but my love for Felina is strong and I rise where I've fallen Though I am weary, I can't stop to rest
see the white puff of smoke from the rifle I feel the bullet go deep in my chest From out of nowhere, Felina has found me Kissing my cheek as she kneels by my side Cradled by two loving arms that I'll die for One little kiss and Felina They all died. <laughs>